Good morning, everybody, and welcome to episode 35 of the Quickie Podcast. Thanks for being here. Today's guest is Nancy Wu, a local Vancouver design celebrity. She'll love that I said that. Um, I love chatting with Nancy, and I've known about her for probably a couple of years now. been following her work on Instagram, and uh, we have a number of mutual friends in the local design scene, so it was great to finally really connect with her and have you know, a deeper conversation. Um, I love Nancy's story. She shares how she is the youngest of five kids. Um, originally, she wanted to be a comic book artist, but had an uncle of hers, um, who was a pilot at the time, say that, uh, oh, you don't want to do that. They don't make any money. Well, turns out they do. And I also like the story that she shares with us about the first time she noticed design out in the world. Um, Around the age where she wasn't quite old enough to read yet, uh, her parents told her that her first full sentence that she said was, look, mom, S-O. She noticed the logo. She had always noticed logos. So that was really interesting to hear. Um, It's a great story. I really enjoyed chatting with Nancy. Ladies and gentlemen, the super talented, super kind Nancy Wu. Here we go. Welcome to the Quickie Podcast, the daily interview show where we talk to graphic designers about their journey to the creative field, and we do it in 30 minutes or less. So, are you ready for a Quickie? Good morning, Nancy. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. Are you ready for the Quickie? I sure am, Dave. All right. Well, let's start with a tough question. Briefly tell the listeners about yourself. Well, uh, I've been designing for over 25, maybe approaching 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Started off in fine art and then uh, went into graphic design and illustration and totally fell in love with it. And I've been doing it ever since. I've had the pleasure of working at different agencies and studios all over Vancouver and um you know, gotten my stuff in magazines, design books and whatnot, and love social media to a certain extent. And uh, uh, still continue to love what I do until the sad day comes when I don't love it anymore. But I, I really love it. <laughs> so right now you're on the good streak. Uh, well, yes, for now. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So I want to go back about uh, back to your childhood. And I want to know what was your childhood like? And do you feel that you had a creative childhood? And if yes, what made it so? Well, um, I was the young youngest daughter of uh, five kids. There's four girls, one boy. And my parents, you know, when I was a toddler, we grew up um, down on Davie. Mm-hmm. My parents managed an IGA that my grandmother uh, owned. And so, you know, I remember as a kid, I had little bits and bobs that I remember. And I remember um, draw, drawing all over the place. You know, I would draw under the dining room table with crayons behind the walls on the couch just so that my mom wouldn't catch it. Mm-hmm. And apparently they said that I drew on my arms to make myself look pretty, even though ironically <laughs> I don't have any tattoos whatsoever. Yeah. Um, but, you know, originally I wanted to be a comic book artist because I really loved reading Archie comics and all that stuff and drawing. But my favorite uncle said, oh, they don't make money. You don't want to do that for a living. And he was a pilot at the time. So I thought, OK. Um, so I, I knew I wanted to go into art, but I didn't really discover design till uh, later in design school or sorry, I guess in art school. Mm-hmm. Um. And I, but I think in terms of having a creative childhood, it's funny because, 
you know, being in a Chinese family, working class, East Van, it was like, you know, do a job that you're going to have a career with or be able to get a job with. So it'd be everything from being a nurse to an accountant to um, secretaries, like all very working class kind of jobs. Yep. And, you know, for the record, my very first job was wearing a hairnet and pitting plums at White Spot for two days. Pitting plums si- at White Spot. Pitting plums. And my sister worked at head office at the time. And, you know, I, I ended up doing that. And after that, I thought, yeah, I don't want to do that. Okay. But then, um, you know, I ended up working at Expo and, you know, selling food at the vendors and everything. And I got to meet people and I started to have a bit of a voice and be able to be, t- you know, be able to talk to people. But, you know, I never really thought about design or knew about it at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, you asked about noticing design in the wild and, in a way, I guess I always like logos because a famous story my family tell me is that um, the first word I said was, or the first sentence I said was, look, mom, S-O. No and way. That, and the story with that is my father, even though he managed the IA store, you know, you don't make tons of money and that kind of thing. So on weekends, he was a mechanic. Um, and so he wore like the blue overalls and had, you know, that little oval kind of um, embroidered name tag that yep. said his name on there. Mm-hmm. And so that was, you know, my dad's uniform on weekends. And the thing that's so crazy, and I, I, I discovered this recently, was that there's that Facebook page where people talk about nostalgia, what Vancouver used to be before, you know, all the real estate changed the city and everything. And the funny thing is, four times a week, those who know me know I go to spin class, you know, four days a week, and I'm driving to that same location over by um, where Granville Street Bridge hooks onto Granville Street at mm-hmm. the base of the bridge. And it turns out that when I watched that Facebook um, page, people had, uh, you know, old footage of what Vancouver used to look like. And there's a video of bus drivers who are doing the whole Granville Street, uh, you know, route. And right at that foot of the bridge was a huge SO neon sign that you would see while you're going over the bridge towards downtown. Oh, cool. What are the chances of that, that this place that I go to so many times during the week was where that first look mom so thing happened. Oh what are the chances gosh. of that? And that's what my life has been. It's been a series of different things and I figure out how they connect. And in some way, that is what I do as a designer is you find all the different parts and figure out how do they link and how do they come together and make sense mm-hmm. to tell that story. So when that's you, my job. when you first saw that SO logo and you spoke that sentence to your parents, what, what age do you think that was? Oh, when do kids start talking? <laughs> Gosh, I have no idea. Whenever that was, but my, my parents tell me that. And of course, you know, my mom's memory is a bit more foggy these days, so she won't know all that detail exactly. And she'll always say, I had five kids. How am I supposed to remember everything? Yeah, it could be one and you a know, half, two years kind old. Kind of snappy. But yeah, probably that, you know. And I think that that discovery that I had uh, recently about that just kind of gave me shivers. And at the same time, it validated, yeah, that's that's what it means. It's interesting. My kids are older now. Um, but I remember when my daughter was maybe four or so, and this is when Telus first came out. Do you remember all their like white and their animal campaigns? You know the. Oh, Tell- when Telus when Telus first came to BC, I was working at an agency, and my job was to mess around with the proportion of everything because it was all whacked out when we first got it. Oh, the T was huge. The Telus type was really uh, spaced out, and it didn't have any alignment. So. I spent a lot of time with that, yes. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So you know. But my, I da- know it well, yeah. my daughter said something to me about um, 
you know, asking about, you know, what does TELUS have animals and lots of white for? What is that? What is that about? And I thought, what an interesting observation for a four-year-old. And uh, so we just sort of chatted about branding and, you know, everybody across Canada looks at, you know, this sort of imagery and thinks TELUS and that reminds them of TELUS and supposed to give TELUS more business. And I mean, it started with the ClearNet. Before it became TELUS, it was ClearNet brand and they were just using flowers, but then it evolved into animals and, you know, to the point where they had to actually try and get real animals to do this. But now they're all digital. They're all every single one. So Mm -hmm. that's... That's how things have evolved. Yeah, the hippo one stands out the most to me. That's the one I remember most. (laughs) (laughs) Giant hippo. Yeah. Um, So when you first started out in this design field, what's something that you wish you knew when you were just getting going? Um, You know, at at first when I thought about this, at first I thought, oh, I should have learned about web design earlier and kept on it. But that's, that's the kind of thing where I honestly think to be a good one, you have to be kind of obsessively on it 24 seven. Mm hmm. But, um, you know, there's an awful lot of competition right now. And, you know, it might be popular because of the Macintosh that it's so accessible. And there's a certain glamour of being a designer now um, because it's not just a man's trade or an industrial commercial commodity. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing is, I didn't go into it because it was popular. I went into it because I loved it and, you know, had a passion and constantly hungry to learn more. And, you know, when I went to UBC, I was taking a fine arts degree right from high school because I was obedient and my art teacher said, you should go to fine arts and become a teacher and everything. And I thought, okay. And, you know, I was so interested in detail and technique that after a while, you know, students and teachers said, you shouldn't be here. And I thought, what? And they go, well, you know, like fine art, a lot of it was people either, you know, exploring personal trauma or, you know, pouring their soul out in an artistic statement. But I was always like wanting to look at technique and making things print properly a certain way. And so, you know, at the time is funny because it wasn't even my full-time teacher. She, the re- regular teacher was on mat leave, I think. So there was a TA who was a practicing painter, uh, Mia something. I forget what her last name was, but she was lovely. And she said that you should go see what Capilano's doing and check it out. And so I went with my dad. And this was probably second year as in printmaking. And early in the term, I said, well, let's see what this Capilano thing is. And I went and took a look and I saw stuff up on the walls and I came out of there my dad said I look kind of pale and like I saw a ghost. And he goes, "What is it?" I said, "I gotta cancel all my UBC classes right now. They're calling like the you know they're getting students signed up to um, you know to apply for foundation year in two weeks. I gotta get my portfolio going." Mm-hmm. And so that's what I did. Dropped a bunch of classes, put my my time and effort into getting that, and I applied at Capilano, and that was life changing for me. It really was. So you had a substitute teacher basically tell you that art is about more emotion and you know people pouring their soul into well i mean no, that was my observation that was yeah. my observation where you know people I'd, I'd see people you know presenting their work and they'd be crying over it and then kind of like it's a drawing of blankety blank like whatever and i really struggled with concepts at the time too because i didn't feel connected to it mm-hmm. um so you know i mean for in all honesty i don't think i was mature enough for university at the time you know i came right from uh high school and you know, high school kids now are much smarter, but I felt I felt I wasn't, you know, a fully fleshed human being yet. Just so, a baby, just a child still. Well, no, I just I just wasn't there mentally. Mm-hmm. I wasn't. And, um, you know, even students were saying that, you know, maybe design and illustration because your, your heart is there. Your heart's not here. You're just kind of going through the motions and 
doing stuff, but you're always caring about technique and making sure that the print is done a certain way. You know, maybe you should go change your school, change your education, change your your experiences. And mm-hmm. I was thankful for that. So from you that know, first walkthrough at Capilano, that's when you went, oh my gosh, this is where I need to be. That was it. Yep. You know, and it, ironically, like, you know, flash forward 27 years later, and I started teaching there last year. And the neat thing is, even though the teachers are different, um, you know, faculty is different, students are different, it still has that same feeling that I had when I was in school. That's it's cool. quite powerful. Invokes the same emotion. The, the same idea that, you know, work hard, play hard, you know, and also the fact that you you can't control your destiny, but you can possibly lead it. Mm-hmm. You could possibly, you know, change the course of what you do. So that's a really unique story. And I'm interested on in how that um, sort of leads to this next, or the answer to this next question. Um, but what has been the most influential design of your life so far? Either something that you've just seen or something you've been a part of? Um, it's funny because I actually thought more globally that way because I find that, um, you know, when recently at Design Thinkers, you know, mind you, I only saw a couple talks, so I can't say it as a whole, but. You know, I did come across some speakers who would talk about design as a whole or, or, you know, globally design can change the world and we should do this and blah, blah, blah. And it was all, you know, I agreed with their sentiment. And at the same time, it's not the kind of thing that can really come to fruition unless more than one person does it or yes. many people do it. And when I travel to places like, you know, Tokyo, where you see so much innovation happening there, like they're miles ahead of where we are. Mm-hmm. You know, the time when I was there, I went there probably 25, 26 years ago, the first time, and I walked by a shelf talker and it talked to me, you know, or I had an elevator, uh, an escalator say, careful, watch your step. Like, just what? You know, it's like Blade Runner. <laughs> Looking around, um, who, said, who said that? But it was, that's what they were doing. And then New York, there's a wealth of gra- graphic design all over the city where they really, um, you know, they really embrace and use graphic design in a really powerful way because they're not afraid to go, well, no one else does this so you know, we can't do it. It's very much about we need to be loud and get attention because New York is a very busy city and, you know, and a dense one at that, you know, but I'll always really put someone like Paula Scher at high regard because, um, you know, her, the boldness that she puts into her work and the thoughtfulness and really who else has her life's work or portfolio throughout the whole city of Manhattan. You know, that's it's not even the fact that she's a woman designer. It's the fact that anyone can have that kind of power and use it, you know, in a really powerful, positive way mm-hmm. and showing the world the power of design and typography. That, that's, that's astounding. And it's, you know, it's really inspiring to see that. Wow. That's a great answer. Yeah. I've been, uh, I've been to New York once, but I can't wait to get back and take in more of it. Oh yeah. I mean, in some ways, Tokyo and New York are very similar because it's major, major full on eye candy and inspiration. And yet, you know, I've I've only been to New York a couple of times. Actually, no, maybe three times. But Tokyo, I've been to probably five or six. And every single time I go to both those cities, my experience is different. Hmm. I you know, you might go to the same places, but it's just what you experience and your takeaway is always something new and and uh, challenging in a in a positive way. Where you can go, what about this or what if this? Like it's. You know, where we often go, oh, there's only one way to do something. Well, go to those cities and you can see there's multiple ways to do things. That's cool. Have you been to Brazil? 
No, I haven't. So have I have a, a guest coming up on an episode uh, in the next five days or so. Um, his name is Gabe, and he's from San Paulo in Brazil, and he tells an amazing story. I'm not going to get into it. I'll let you listen to the episode, but he tells, okay. uh, he shares something really cool about what they're doing with art in the city um, for their bridges and their tunnels. It's really unique. Fantastic. I mean, you know, even Vancouver, like this, there's that um, that alleyway that HCMA mm-hmm. did where they painted it really bright colors. Like that's a great start in Vancouver. I'd love to see more of that. I backed that on Kickstarter because I thought it was really cool. Fantastic. It was, it is really cool. Like it's just, you know, it's something so simple and yet no one's done it for so long. Mm-hmm. So kudos. So I want to know what has been the most challenging time in your design career so far. Why was it challenging and how did you get through it? It was May. It was, uh, <laughs> I learned, I learned what the word ghosting is. Okay. And, uh, I, you know, I, someone posted about it, that it's terribly rude and unnecessary, but people do it all the time. And, you know, I don't know if it's to avoid confrontation or, you know, they don't want to deal with it or lack of confidence to be upfront or honest, but, you know, sometimes it's okay to say no. And that's something that I know some people find it really hard to say. And it's, it's tough as a freelancer because you end up leaving people dangling. And it's like, you know, I've had people say, oh, anytime you get a job, say yes to everything. It's like, well, that's not realistic because you could get inundated. But other times, you know, when you put things aside because you go, oh, this job might happen and then it doesn't happen. It's it's heartbreaking if you, you know, had your heart set on it. Yeah. And other times it's like it isn't the name of the game. You know, there's always going to be someone more expensive or someone cheaper. And at the same time, I'm feeling like there's definitely a lot of people who are just, you know, whether it's devalue devaluing the industry unbeknownst to them or the fact that they're so desperate, they want to pay rent or they go, how can I get work experience if no one will give it to me? Mm-hmm. So, and the the extremes of of the freelance life, but ghosting, I feel like that's something that I found really tough because it happened an awful lot last month, more than usual. And so, by ghosting, you're talking about when you're talking with a customer, giving them a proposal and a quote, um, and then you don't hear a yes, you don't hear a no, you just hear nothing. Yep, you know, yeah. and that's. You know, and it's fine if it's like, no, we were someone else. Thanks so much for your, you know, getting in touch or the fact that we're not ready yet. We've changed our mind. That's totally fine. And I think a no is better than silence. Yeah, it is. You know, and it's funny because um, it's like I joke with people now after the fact. But I remember when I got let go, I said to people, you know, I've never been dumped in a relationship. Now I know what it feels like. For sure. And some people, you know, some people it happens more frequently than others. And it's just real life because it's not so much you as it is you know, financial. And I've learned that after the fact, but, you know, being someone that really cares about everything I do, it, it does, it does become personal, you mm-hmm. know, and yet I don't want to be such a baby about it going, Oh, it's the end of the world. Cause when one door closes, another opens. And that does happen a lot too. Yeah. So I can't, I can't deny that part. See, I got dumped once and then I thought this sucks. So the next one, I just locked it down. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I've, I've successfully like, it's interesting cause I had a conversation, um, with a guy once who contacted me saying, I want to get a website and a brand identity done for $700. And I ended up having a conversation with him. And I could have easily said, you're out of your mind, blah, 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 and then Mm -hmm. walk away from it. But I ended up talking with him back and forth saying, well, there's actually a lot of work involved in doing both those things. There's, um, you know, not just a physical work, but there's also like strategy. There's about, you know, building your brand and understanding who your competitors are and what kind of messaging you have. 
Oh, I'm sorry, that's me. Um, anyway, and to make a long story short, is by having that conversation with him, and he was dealing with a startup and getting you know financing for his company, he said, you know what? I didn't have money to spend at the beginning. I do have money to spend now. And the fact that you spent so much time to talk with me and to help me really understand this better, I really want to work with you now. And so we ended up negotiating something that could work with you know, a more reasonable budget and leaner deliverables. But nevertheless, it ended up being a delightful job. And mm -hmm. it was all done by email and Skype. But it was by educating someone on what a designer does. That's great, you know, and that and that needs to happen more and on on a larger scale. I feel. Yep, and that's what happens to me an awful lot. Is I do end up getting work that way simply because I'm wanting to spend time with clients. I'm not trying to do a you stay over there, I stay here, and you know don't touch my stuff. It's very much about building a relationship with one another so that there's respect at the end where I'm understanding where they're coming from and they're hopefully understanding where I want to help them and get them, you know, to that place. Because in the end it's, I'm advocating for them. Mm -hmm. I'm not to lord over them and get what I want so I can enter it into design, uh, design, you know, competition. That's not my objective. Yeah. Your objective is not to build a portfolio piece. You really want to help their identity, help their brand help them and i'm at the point in my life and career where i'm not going to get that oh this is going to be really good for a portfolio it's like no no that means it's going to be really good for you because you're not going to pay, pay for it mm -hmm. um so who is a designer or a brand that you look up to or closely follow and what is it about them that you like well, i definitely like uh, people who designed before the internet or pinterest you know and i've been following that more so lately just um i got to know riley cran uh a couple of years ago and hearing him talk about things about designers it was really inspiring because it's easy to follow the crowd and go oh everyone loves a so-and-so because they're really popular but you know for me it's never been a popularity contest it's you know who's super talented who has an amazing unique vision and technical ability and many people before the age of computers have that mm -hmm. but it's a matter of finding them because there is you know a, a fair amount of people who are looking at the past to understand their futures because and it's not about ripping off work. It's very much about, you know, the work that they did looked like nobody else, and it wasn't replicated to that same degree. So people like, there's Stefan Konchev from Europe. Um, I forget. I don't think it, he might be from Poland. I can't remember. Um, but he does a lot of amazing identity work. And then there's Herb Lubell, in which there's an amazing archive in New York where they have all of his original tissues and sketches and, you know, drawings. And everything was done pre-computer. So wow. he's a master. And then there's a guy that um, I think from the UK named Tom Eckersley, who it's really hard to find any books on him. But if you Google him, Tom Eckersley, and you Google his posters and illustration work, it's really whimsical, it's colorful, it's delightful, and, you know, it's really great. And so people who, from the past, that did that kind of, you know, had that same vision and really talented, you know, guys like that who are in the same vein now, you know, I would categorize uh, Tom Brown and Port Moody, who works out of his home. Mm -hmm. amazing typography and editorial work for magazines um there's Miriam mcneil in the uk that really challenge and bend typography and they did this amazing project for i magazine last year i think where they did this really um, amazing typographic pattern very colorful and they worked with a printer in the uk where every single cover of i magazine was a different pattern oh wow and they they pulled it off and then they are now selling uh, posters with that that same design and they really challenge typography and do it in a really unique way 
And then there's someone, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, it's called Vaca Libres in Italy. Mm-hmm. And he's an identity designer. And, you know, my styles are nothing like them, but I love how they do it in their own voice. And they're always changing, but they're always interesting. And, you know, the bottom line is that there's nothing wrong with being inspired by other people. But it's the idea that they're doing their own thing. And I think that we as designers need to also do our own thing, you know, in our work versus trying to do what everyone else is doing and trying to capture that that buck. Like, oh, so-and-so is doing it that way. I'm going to do the same thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't deny the fact that, you know, you may have the exact same passion or, or interest as another person. And that's great. But don't copy them. You know, for sure. Your own. Yeah, those are great ones. Great pointers out to uh, or great shout outs to um, some designers doing really unique things. Mm-hmm. So I want you to take us to a design or a project that you were a part of that did not go well or bring the desired results. And what was that like? How did that feel? Well, um, there's a couple, you know, awkward things, but, it, but there are lessons to be learned. You know, one was when I was an intermediate designer, I learned about honesty. And the thing is, it doesn't mean that you have to cl- tell clients everything. Because they don't need to know everything, frankly, but you don't want to lie about it because it can catch up with you or hurt you. And there are everything from, you know, projects of, of designers that, you know, I worked on a project with who I end up later finding out that, oh, they showed that work in their portfolio, but they said they did it all. They took full credit for it. And the thing is, it's totally okay to share, but taking sole credit for something you did with other people, that's, you know, that's not necessary. Um but, you know, in the instance I was thinking of, there was a conference call about a project that was going sideways and I was involved in it. But, you know, I wasn't leading the project, but it was a, a situation where I had to get on a conference call with a printer and the client and the creative director and myself on this project. And the client was, you know, we were talking on a conference call and the client said, just a minute, I just have to go get something, just just a second. And so the creative director thought that the client had left and you know, he was still on the line and talking to the print rep and all he was doing was taking notes at that point because, you know, I wasn't senior. And he told the print rep, you know, this falsehood about what the client said. And all of a sudden she pops in. She said, I'm still here. She heard everything. Mm. She corrected him. And that was really awkward because that was a case of where, you know, regardless of who's telling the truth, you know, you want to be transparent in, in what you do, especially, you know, in cases like that where many people are involved. It's not about pointing fingers. It's about finding the solution because obviously there's a problem that requires all of us to be talking together, but let's solve it without tearing one another down. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's one, one lesson I learned. Um, another one, too, was about communication. That I was asked to take on a job from another person who briefed me on the job um, and informed that this client was very indecisive. And that maybe I would have better luck as a woman. That's what I was told. Okay. You know, I was intrigued, but I continued working on it. And then I informed her that we're running out of budgeted hours. And the client said to me, well, she doesn't work that way. And she she's a, I'll know it when I see it kind of relationship. And I said, well, I don't work that way. But the thing is, she wasn't told that. Uh, so again, that's, you know, what it boils down to, I guess both these instances are about communication and and honesty in that. You know, it's finding a way because, um, you know, there are going to be cases where there's going to be disagreement or where one side might go, well, this is my truth. And another person goes, well, this is my truth. And it's almost like, you remember that movie Jackie Brown that um, Tarantino did way back? No, I haven't seen that one. There's a scene at the end of the movie where a certain instance happens with many different characters. And what he does is that he shows it from one character's point of view. 
And then he does the same scene from another character's point of view. Okay, cool. And you get to go, oh, because once you see it from each character's point of view, they're, what they're seeing and what they're experiencing is real. But the other character never saw it. Mm-hmm. And this that that scene in Jackie Brown, I absolutely love it. Like, go look it up and watch it. You don't even have to watch a full movie, but just that part at the end where all of them, but their perspectives are radically different. That's what real life can be like sometimes. You know, <laughs> so but it's true. understanding how can we get it so that we're all aligned so we all know that same experience mm-hmm. and try and solve it versus blaming one another for it. True. So sticking with the, the sort of rough side, just for one last question, and then I'll turn it or turn this bus around here. Um, mm-hmm. What are you struggling with in your creative career right now? Hmm. I guess it's always wondering what the next step's going to be. You know, as a, as a freelancer, it's always kind of terrifying because, you know, being from a blue collar East Van family, the idea of unemployment is a constant dread and terror, but it's, it's a reality sometimes. Um, you know, there, I understand the peaks and valleys that happen in work. I also understand that things change because there was a period where I would be so busy and go, you know, going through periods where I'm so not busy. And yet there's opportunities to be taken in that time because, you know, the saying goes, Oh, if only I had more time, I would do this and this and this. It's like, well, now you have that. So it's a matter of taking advantage of those times and using them wisely to either learn new things or to, work on personal projects or, or what have you, but just to take, to use time wisely. Well said, use it to grow almost. Yeah. Or just even just time for family. Like just, you know, it, it could be something as, as silly as, you know, going to Starbucks with my, with my kid and going, Hey, let's, let's mess around with the barista and let's call you Marco. And then when the barista yells Marco, then we yell Polo. Like, <laughs> like we've done that before. And it's those little moments where it's like, there's no plan. The, the plan is no plan. So that's funny. You know, I never know what, what the next thing's going to be, whether like even teaching, I didn't know if I was that I was going to fall into teaching last year, mm-hmm. but I was asked numerous times. I thought, okay, I'll show you. I'll, I'll teach. And I ended up loving it. Yeah. You know, I, I've taught before, but to teach at your own school, that's it's kind of different. Right. But I, I really enjoyed it. That's a good one. So I'm going to, going to turn it around and get to the positive here. Um, yep. what's a project that you've been a part of that you are the most proud of one that makes your heart sing, or maybe even the, des- uh, the biggest design feather in your cap. Hmm. Um, I think the most, like, uh, I guess, um, a design solution that's personal that comes from uh, a real world design problem is, um, something I'm really proud of. Like, uh, you know, here's a great story that I shared. Um, I was asked to design uh, an identity for the IBD Center of British Columbia. It doesn't exist yet, but they're working on it. IBD is, um, I think it's uh, irritable bowel syndrome, it used to be called, but mm-hmm. it's, it's a disease. And I was asked to work on the identity for that. And I thought, okay, this is, this is going to be a good challenge. I love the challenge. And I ended up talking to someone that I didn't know exactly if this person had it, but I ended up having this interview with this person just on my own, just trying to learn a bit more about it and got to really hear what it's like from the side of the person who is living with it, that every person has different, um, uh, you know, different experiences as well as um, they suffer from the disease in a different way. But, you know, what it boils down to is that it's their insides, what they eat, how they digest food, it's, 
it's a real, it's like a war zone in there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I learned about that and I learned a lot in that one hour spending time getting to know the human side of it. Um, you know, and then I ended up going to the, uh, you know, to the gym and I saw an article as well about it. And I ended up carrying out that article and reading it. And, you know, it, the focus ended up being about the person who's, who's suffering with it. So the IBD wasn't about, you know, like a lot of the identities for IBD are always about body parts, like intestines and wavy mm-hmm. lines and stuff like that. But this was very much about the person who's living with it. So out of that, the logo was the I in IBD stood for the person who's living with it. And that the B there's, you know, like there's a kind of a, um, a stigma about it that people don't feel comfortable talking to people about it that, Oh, I have to rush off. I'm not feeling well. She's a bathroom or, yep. you know, trying to find an exit route anytime they travel like that's really tough Mm -hmm. but then also the idea that everyone's disease is manifested in a different way so then that becomes the outer ring of this mark um in it you know being able to tell the story and then when i presented that identity in in the presentation meeting it was two doctors who are leading it and you know right away they were so moved by that story that i told about talking to you know my friend that that has this and you know, right away it was approved right in the meeting. That doesn't happen all the time, but he approved it right away because he said, you understand it so well. Thank you so much. Then flash forward, you know, a couple of weeks later, and I do see that friend again. And, uh, you know, this person said, oh, I saw I saw the work that you did for it. It looks great. I said, thanks. How'd you see it? She goes, well, it was at my doctor's office. He was the one that diagnosed me because I had this mystery illness for over 10 years. And no one knew what it was. And he figured out what it was. That was your client. Mm-hmm. what are the chances of that happening right Jeez, that's crazy you know, and then flash forward i ended up doing a talk with that with creative pulse i sh- i shared that story of how that was made and then the next day i get an email from um you know the the support person on that project and she said guess check out this email two drug reps were in vancouver just for a meeting and they were going to fly back home and someone said hey you should go to this uh you know creative pulse talk and and listen to it, it might be something interesting. And they saw Nancy talk about how the IBD center identity happened, where it came from. Wow. Put them back saying that was really cool. And that's, that's what I love is where, you know, a design solution comes from a real world problem from a personal connection, you know, because even like the first time when I, like I've always wanted to get in communication arts, that was always a dream of mine. And then when I got let go, um, you know, from my full-time job, I was devastated. But the first freelance job I got, after getting laid off was, uh, you know, for a company called Yahweh that, you know, didn't live very long, but it was an innovative kind of project. And I wasn't sure if I was still going to be a designer because I thought if I got let go, maybe I'm really not that good. Mm-hmm. But I gave it my all, ended up getting communication arts. And the thing is, doing that project wasn't intended to get an award, but it became, it was great. My job was to do a good job for the client. Mm-hmm. And that's what any job should always be. It should be for them, not for you. Yeah, that's a great example of, you know, finding that human connection um, to something like that, that really is somebody's whole world has to battle with that for their whole world. And if you can bring that, that visually to an organization that is researching and showing care for that person as well, I mean, you mm-hmm. just knocked it out of the park. Yeah, but but the beauty was that it didn't come out of trying to do what everyone else was doing. Mm-hmm. Again, it's the thing I, I keep on, I guess that that's the theme of this whole talk is that what is your story? How can you tell your, your, you know, translate your own voice, your design voice through different projects? For sure. 
So the last question I want to round out to is what is one design product tool website or community that you just can't live without? Hmm. So you said website, community, yep, product tool, website, community, and you can interpret those however you want. Hmm. I've always loved Instagram actually. And <laughs> um, just I've made interesting connections with people through that. Um, you know, sometimes it can be very fleeting because you never know who's looking at it as well as it can, you know, have people come out of the woodwork and, and connect with you. Mm-hmm. You know, I always find that interesting. Um, you know, yesterday I did, a, I think we were talking about it, uh, you know, I ended up acquiring this collection of um, Marion Banshee's business cards, mm-hmm. she's cleaning, I think. And it ended up being like going to a, a design conference, but in business card form. And I found it the most fascinating thing. So I posted about it on um, Instagram stories live as I was looking at them one by one mm-hmm. and sharing people. And I got so many emails from Dubai and San Francisco and just different people just saying, please tell me this is going to be like on a blog or that you're going to do something with this. And I said, I literally just opened the envelope and I was looking at this going like my brain was exploding. That's so, so cool. You know, I don't have, I still have no idea what I'm going to do with it, but the fact is that that's a real experience. And I've seen other people share real experiences too, that that's what makes like, I, I still want to still feel stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to be a sad day when I can't feel anything, but I want to feel you know, that stirring of, of loving what you do or always being curious about design or learning new things or seeing someone innovate that way, not in a way to get jealous, but in a way of going, that's great. I'm so happy for you. I'm going to give my own spin on it. Not I'm going to copy you. That's great. Yeah. Nancy, that's my last question. Yay. You're off the hook. You made it through. (laughs) I made it. (laughs) Thank you so much for being on the quickie podcast today. You're welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much for um, inviting me and hope everyone enjoyed it. All right. Thank you so much for listening to the Quickie Podcast today. I really hope you enjoyed the interview here with Nancy Wu. And don't forget to head over to iTunes and Spotify and hit that subscribe button. That way you find out as soon as a new episode is published every day, seven days a week. Thank you again for listening and have an awesome day.